Good morning. My name's Jason, and I have the honor of uh, reading this morning's verses for us. They come from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. As he was saying these things, Many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate you reading that. Before we get into anything about the sermon, I just want to uh, just kind of show you a little bit of what's on my heart. Um, This past Friday, we had a memorial service for uh, the husband of one of our members, uh, Pat Hayes. Uh, her husband, Tom, passed away uh, last, uh, two weeks ago, and we had a memorial service last Friday. And uh, I had the privilege of officiating it. And uh, as I, I walked out and got to see the whole crowd there, half of the crowd was you guys. And uh, when we come back here for a reception that many of you were involved with preparing food for. And that's the sort of stuff that just like... Ding, 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 right on the heartstrings of a pastor. Um, so I, I'm just incredibly grateful for all of you and for your support for Pat and for Melody and Dennis and their family. So thank you. Um, real quick, can we get all the lights off? I said real quick, Dave. <laughs> I'm saying every single one of them, all of it. Keep going. 
Yep. All right, now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Some of you have phones and you've outsmarted me. Already, just in that little question, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Can you already see how absolutely essential light is? Guys, in, in today's tech world, your, 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 your phone is now equipped with that little thing called a light, right? Can you imagine what 50 years ago must have been like if, if somebody got on the news and said, in just a few years, your phone is going to have a flashlight on it? You know how crazy people would have thought you were if you said that? So if you have your phone, go ahead and hold it up, turn on the light on the back. Yeah, turn on the light, you know, the flashlight thing. This is like the one time a pastor actually asks you to bring out your phone unless you use that as a Bible. Yep, turn on your lights and hold them up in the air and start waving them. So this is what a Taylor Swift concert's like. Okay, put them down now. Uh, just, actually, I just wanted to, to know what it feels like. Um, oh, it's Okay. Can you imagine, though, just to picture this, right? Imagine there was no sunlight coming in, bleeding in from the windows, and, and that little phone, on, and that little light on your phone was the only light that you had to live by. Would that be possible? You think you could work it out when you're driving and that's all the light you have? Absolutely not. That would be a terrible way to live. Now, maybe you're, uh, you're somebody who lives a little bit more prepared, and, and you're like me, and you carry around a little bit more of a flashlight. This is a, a Phoenix uh, PDR36R, and its uh, max luminosity is 100 and f- or, uh, uh, 1,500 lumens, and it can throw light about 960 feet, approximately. It also has this. <laughs> I'm ready, just in case. Um, Can you imagine living life by a flashlight like this? Because here's the thing. On this lowest setting, it can last about 115 hours on a full charge. On the highest setting, called turbo, it can only last two. You think you could live by this? That was a bad idea. Um, By this light? You think you could live by a little flashlight or maybe even get a bigger one that requires you to have a book pack or a battery pack and like you can walk around like a torch? You think you, think you could actually live by that? No. Well, what about, what about if we turn to some more natural light, like not the sun? What about stars? You know, those little things, they put off some light. You think you could live by just starlight alone? No. Not at all. Apart from our own galaxy's star, which we call the... Do you know what the next closest star is? It's called Proxima Centauri, and it's 4.25 light years away. I did the math, that's 25.5 trillion miles. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work either. What do you think my point is in all of this? The sun is absolutely vital for life. 
a star that's not too close to consume us, but not too far away, a self-sustaining, self-emulating source of light and heat that is absolutely essential for any kind of life. You can turn on the lights now, brother. Thank you. As every morning I walk around my home and I open up all the windows and the shades and the blinds, because I don't want to pay for artificial light. I'm not, the, I'm not sure I'm not the only one who thinks like that. Men, I'm not paying for artificial light. You open those windows, you let the light in. That's free. But we let the light in because it's the best source. And, and yet, what's so ironic is that such a powerful element in our galaxy is simply a signpost pointing to even greater reality. That just like the galaxy's sun was designed in a way to uh, create life and heat for us or sustain life and heat for us, there's an even more necessary and essential reality, and that's our need for the sun himself, that is Jesus. And, and here's the thing, today Jesus makes this absolutely radical claim about the nature of who he is, about his essence, you might say, about his function and his purpose. That's the first thing he said. What did he say? I am the light of the world. Bless you, by the way. That was perfect timing. What did he say? That's true. Guys, the Gospel of John is renowned to be one of the greatest literary works in all of history. And, and in this Gospel, John writes out seven signs uh, that are miracles that are pointing to the nature of who Jesus is. But he also writes out seven I am statements that Jesus describes himself as that points to who he really is. And, and the way that it works in the Greek is that he uses these words, ego, amy. Can you say ego, amy? And that's how we can kind of track this along in our passage today and even throughout the Gospel of John. Now, this is a, a quick uh, bonus question. For those of you who can get this right, I, I, I don't have a treat for you, but uh, you, you, again, you're plucking on the heartstrings if you do. Um, so far in the Gospel of John, which I am statement or statements have we come across? I am the... Ha! Ah! Well done. I am the bread of life. He said that in John 6, 35. This is the second one that we come across in this gospel of John. And he says, I am the light of the world. We'll see other ones as we go along. But I would go ahead and commend to you that if you write in your Bibles, which I also recommend for you, that you circle that line or circle that phrase, circle that saying, star it, highlight it, color it, do whatever you can. Make sure you put at the top of the page that I am the light of the world. You make sure you write that out so you know this is exactly where this is because, because this is so vital. It's essential for us to understand the nature and purpose of the Son himself, Jesus. And what's ironic is that the words I am, ego amy, appear several other times. And so there's going to be a way that we kind of follow that through the text today. But here's the thing, right? We, we come across this really powerful saying that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you know what we could do? We could immediately kind of take that and run off and skip with it and say, oh, look at how we can use this. It applies over here. And look at how it goes over here. And it, you can just tuck it in right there. This is great. I love this. Well, 
that would be uh, something that is a misuse of Scripture. Um, the easy, that would be the easiest thing to do, to make your own connections, draw your own conclusions as to what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. That is something that uh, biblical scholars like to call eisegesis. Can you say eisegesis? Eisegesis means that you lead into the text, meaning you are, uh, you are taking your own interpretations, your own context, and you're putting it into the text of what it means with your own presuppositions, your own agendas, your own biases. We often hear it as the phrase, you're reading into the text too much, right? One thing is clear, right? This statement has a context, Right? Jesus said this as part of a story. If you can remember, they are, they're in Jerusalem and they're celebrating a festival. Do you remember what the name of the festival is? The festival of? I heard something. Tabernacles, I think I heard. Booths, yeah. You, tents. Those are all parts of this festival that's going on in Jerusalem right now. And so that's part of the context that we need to keep in mind as we're hearing Jesus say this because it's going to be it's going to be so gospelicious, I promise you that. But we're going to, so what we're going to do, instead of eisegesis, we're going to do exegesis. Can you say exegesis? It's literally meaning to lead out of. So we're going to go into the text and we're going to let it speak to itself, and that's where we pull our understanding and our meaning out with. So we have this festival of booths, right? And if you can remember, this festival of tents remembered what about Israel's history? Their what? Their wanderings in the wilderness, right? Israel's wilderness journey that was out of slavery to Egypt as they were led into the promised land that God had promised them. And in the in-between, they lived in these tents that they traveled with. Now already, uh, I've referenced that time multiple times uh, in previous sermons, and so you've already hopefully been able to remember that, that, one, that God had miraculously moved in that season of their lives, right, with providing them some of the most essential things for life, right, like, like food, like he, he sent down manna from heaven and then quails as well, and we saw that when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and then we also see uh, God provide water out of rocks in that time, And we just heard just two weeks ago, Jesus say, come to me, all of you who are thirsty. Well, water and food are kind of essential for life. But based on how we opened our morning, what else might quite be essential for life? Light. Especially for traveling through a dark wilderness. So during this festival... One of the things that they would do, uh, along with all the other meaningful celebrations, is that each night they would sound a signal, and they would light these golden lamps throughout Jerusalem as part of their story, as part of this celebration. Why would golden lamps, why would light be something that's integral to this season, or this memory of their wanderings in the wilderness? Well, Let's, let's just do the work of recalling the story, right? You remember Israel back many, many years before this, they were in slavery in Egypt, right? And, and God said, let my people go through Moses, right? And, and after the final plague of the firstborn sons being lost, Pharaoh 
His heart softens and he lets the people go and Israel leaves, right? And Pharaoh's like, nah, never mind, I changed my mind. And he gathers all of his troops and they start pursuing Israel. While Israel makes it to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army comes and traps them. And all of the people are terrified. It's nighttime as Pharaoh comes upon them. And he catches up to them at nighttime. And, and, and Israelites, they're trapped and they're scared. They're terrified. Like, what? Did you just bring us out here so we could die out here instead of in Egypt? And Moses says to them, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you this day. And then look at what happens as, as Pharaoh's army bears in on Israel. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night. And neither group came near each other all night long. Guys, God was a pillar of burning fire in the nighttime. And he made the night look like day to the Israelites. And that, in that pillar of fire, he protected and he shielded Israel from Pharaoh's army coming to advance and consume them and overtake them. In fact, this moment became such an integral part of their songs that they sang this, right? You can see it in Psalm 27. The Lord, Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God as light was very normal for the Israelites. He was their light and their salvation. And God, in this light, miraculously rescued the Israelites. But light wasn't just simply designed to protect them. It was also used divinely by God to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. You can see, actually, this verse comes before the passage we just looked at, so it kind of explains it. Exodus 13, the Lord went ahead of the Israelites in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. And they also had songs about this, how God himself is like a lamp to their feet and his word is like a light to their path. You know that verse, right? You see, God's provision of light while in the wilderness was essential for the Israelites making it home, making it to the promised land. But that's not all light symbolized for the Israelites. There's more throughout the Old Testament, a lot that we could focus on, but we're only going to look at really one part. The prophet, the weird guy named Isaiah, started prophesying about this one he calls the servant. You might recognize Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? But he starts talking about him a few chapters earlier, and you can see it in verse 6 of chapter 49. And he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a what? I can't hear you, church. He will also make you a what? A light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's prophet Isaiah was saying that there would be a servant who would come 
who would himself be light. And not just a light for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles to be God's salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, to the whole world. So this coming Messiah was himself said to be the light. And most of the Israelites, most of the Jews this day that we're looking at here, knew this. They understood this promise. So in this moment in John chapter 8, where they're celebrating this festival of booths and, and they're remembering their travels through the wilderness, remembering how God's provision of vital resources like food, water, and light itself that rescued them from the darkness of Pharaoh's army and led them through the wilderness. And here is this Jesus of Nazareth. This man who's just calling all, causing all sorts of ruckus. And he says, no, I am the light of the world. Now, yeah, there is a ton of metaphorical wealth that we could extract from this, but can't you see already how biblically wealthy this statement is. How biblically rich this is. How soaking in Old Testament understanding this phrase is. Jesus is claiming to be the pillar of light that rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh's advancing army. The pillar of light that through them led the wilderness, or through him led through them through the wilderness into the promised land. And that he was the light that would be God's salvation for the whole world. And this isn't foreign. We've already heard this in John 4, uh, verse 4 through, or sorry, John 1, 4 through 5. In the word was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Guys, there is so much that light does. But isn't kind of just taking it as simple as it is? Maybe the best approach. One of the things he says, I am the light of the world. Notice here he doesn't say, I am a light in the world. As if there's more than one. He says, I am the light. There's only one that is able to actually illuminate the world. Just like we have our own sun that is sufficient to illuminate. The stars won't work. The candles that they light won't work. There's only one. And that one is absolutely, completely essential for life. And Jesus is saying here that he is that light. In other words, he is the one who is absolutely vital for your life in this dark wilderness called the world. Now keep following his claim. Look at what he says next in this verse, verse 12. Because not only with this statement about who he is, Not only does he say that, but he also issues an invitation. Look at verse 12. Anyone who follows me, the light of the world, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does Jesus say here, everyone who at least is willing to say that I'm the light of the world, everyone who's at least acknowledging that I am light, You'll never walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. Does he say that? No. No, we're invited to more than just simply acknowledgement. We're we're invited to, to follow. 
In other words, Jesus isn't just some stationary lamp that you get to put in your house and kind of go live in the light in for just a second and go wander out and just do your own thing. He's not some stationary idol that you get to, to kind of bow down to every once in a while as a nice feature or addition into your life. No, he is the driving addiction of your life. He is the one who is on the move. He's got the kingdom. He's advancing it. And we're the ones who are just invited to follow along in the train of his victory. Not just simply acknowledge his nature. Guys, I, I, I have seen so many like, Christians hold to a, a nominal kind of faith which, which understands that Jesus is, is a light, right? And, and, and there's nothing about them that actually lives like they're convinced of it. Faith is not just simply acknowledging that Jesus is the light. You are absolutely convinced that he is. And if he is therefore the light, won't you go live in the light? Like, won't you go follow the light? If you want light in your life, don't you got to go near it? In fact, Jesus kind of, in an indirect way, implies that's exactly what happens when you live that way. When you are living convinced, well, yeah, Jesus really is the light of the world, so I've if I, if, if I want light in my life, I've got I've to be near him. I've got to follow him. He says, like, if you do that in the positive, if you follow the light, you will never walk in the darkness. But that's not exactly how he says it. He says the opposite, the negative, the inverse. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Sorry, I got that wrong. He says it in the positive. The, the negative is what's implied. In other words, if you don't follow the light, if you want nothing to do with the light, if you simply just acknowledge, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the light, I'm going to go do my own thing over here, then that absolutely means you will always walk in the darkness. Which, which just kind of begs the question, and, and, and I think we're, we're going to be getting into some really hard, hard things here, so... Um, Jesus saying this, what does this imply then about the inherent condition of the state of this world? Is the world full of its own kind of light and, 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 and it's sufficient of itself? It doesn't need any, of its, uh, any extra light? It's got its own? Is this world full of light or is it dark? It's, he's implying that it's dark. That this world is, is corrupt with darkness. It's plagued by it. And you know, the only rational explanation that I've ever found for how wicked the world can be sometimes, how dark the world can be sometimes, is in this book. I don't think any other faith framework or science can ever explain that. You see, this book explains that, that it wasn't made that way originally, that this world was once light. It was once very, very good. But Genesis 3, at the very beginning, shows us how it got corrupted, how darkness came in, and it was, it was us, by the way. It was you and me, humanity. Our own sin, our own pride made it this way. 
we caused the world to fall into the condition of darkness that this world is in. Now, you, you might find this shocking. You might even find this cynical about me. And, and if you know me, I don't, I don't think I'm a cynical person. But the reality is the, the world isn't inherently good. The world is inherently dark. And it's fundamentally broken at its core. Something got fractured in its design. Now, now, when you have that as your baseline, when you have that as your basic understanding for how you approach things in the world, whatever may come, doesn't that help make a little bit more sense of when tragedy strikes? Doesn't it help make a little bit more sense when something so dark happens in the world? Like, for example, when you have a spouse who one week is fine and then the very next week is gasping for their last breaths because they've had too many health failures in between and you're just suddenly stricken with this great loss. Or, or like what happened in Nashville. Like, how can you explain that if the world is inherently good? You can't. There's no answer for that. Like when you, when you have a woman who clearly suffers from emotional and mental disorders and walks into a Christian school and decides that life is worth taking, that doesn't fit well in an inherently good world that's full of light. Why do you think the news is always so depressing? Why do you think we have to go work so hard just to find those little clips of people doing acts of kindness, just to fill our hearts with a reminder, maybe we can believe in humanity again? Do that, I dare you. Go, go Google acts of kindness to restore your faith in humanity. You know what you'll see? You'll find a dog helping an owner carry firewood. You'll, you'll find a crowd of students celebrate when a teacher drains a half-court shot. Oh, that's light! And we have to keep bringing those in front of our faces again and again and again because when we look out into the world, we see so much devastation, so much pain. And you might think I'm being cynical. That's just one instance of darkness, Scott. There's so much beauty in the world. Brothers and sisters, I am arguing this morning that we wouldn't even know what beauty really is unless Jesus came and showed us what it is. The only way we can see beauty is if it's in the light. And the only way that we can know what beauty is is because it's been defined. Like what, what makes a thing like joy or generosity or kindness what makes that beautiful to us? What makes those things, things that are inherently good and, and worth celebrating, and that we look at them and we see that there's light in them, if the light himself didn't define that as light? You see, self-sacrifice and generosity and kindness, all of those were things that we got from God.
And the only way that we can identify those things as beauty and as good is because God the light actually showed up and he said, yeah, there's, there's good. Oh, that's not so good. There's beauty. That's darkness. Without the sun, we wouldn't even see or understand the world. We couldn't, we couldn't even make sense of it. We couldn't make sense of a world that's so full of evil, but also so much good. We wouldn't be able to see any of it without the light himself. I, 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 this, this has to be a quote that gets shared as well, because you know C.S. Lewis just deserves it. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. Guys, we have to follow the light in order to see by it. And here's the thing. The world is offering all sorts of little artificial lights. Hey, come. This one looks pretty good. Follow it, right? Like, oh, like a little cat. Like, come pounce on it. And, oh, and there's another one out there. You go follow that light, right? And, and I'm promising you, none of them are able to sustain you. None of them are actually able to give you life. They only rob you of it. And here's the other dangerous part. What happens when you and I step into the light? You see me. And I see me. And we get exposed for what we are. That we by nature are just like the world, fundamentally broken at our core, sinful. And when we step into the light, that nature, that brokenness gets exposed, but when the light isn't just a judge, but it's also, the, it's also gracious, isn't that then a very precious gift when we get exposed for what we really are? Imagine that you had somewhere lurking in you cancer, wouldn't you want to know, wouldn't you want the light to be shined on that way before it's too late to be treated? Guys, when we step into the light, that's like an early cancer prognosis. That's an early cancer diagnosis that, that we get to actually see what we are really and then go to the one who can actually heal it when we live in the light. And when we live in the light, not only will we see in what darkness is, the absence of light, but we'll also see what really is beautiful, what really is light. We'll see the mountains and, and all the peoples and the valleys and the oceans and the rivers and the creatures that teem in them and the trees and the animals. and Everything is going to look absolutely different when Christ Jesus is the light who guides us on our path as we follow him. And when we follow him, Jesus, he goes on to say in this verse that there's an immediate consequence. You can tell I like going really slow through a passage. We're going to book it through the rest of it, but, but, but look at what else he says. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Guys, what becomes ours if we follow the light? 
the light itself becomes ours. We get it. The light of life becomes ours. When we follow the light, we have the life. So Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you have me. I am yours. I'll be your shield. I'll be your shepherd. I'll be your sacrifice. I'll be your living water. I'll be your bread from heaven. I'll be your God. I'll be your light. He's yours now and forevermore. And he will, as the light help you bear the sorrows of darkness when they come. His light, it'll be like a, like a soft glow to comfort you in your lonely room after the devastating loss. His light will be your lamp to a troubled path. Guys, I, I have to admit, we are just kind of skimming the surface, and there's way more to cover just in that, but in short... Jesus really is the light of the world. And the invitation is to follow the light. And when you follow the light, you have the light. But the story keeps going, and we're going to try to track through it. After Jesus makes this claim, the Jews try to take him on a detour. And they try to discredit him. Despite Jesus' blatant claims of who he is, he, the, the, the Jews, the Pharisees say to him, uh, you're, you're testifying about yourself. You can't do that. What you're saying isn't true. You know how ironic that is? What if you were to tell me, yeah, uh, hey, Scott, there's, there's a light on in this room. And I were to just say back to you, uh, you're the only one saying that. You can't say that. That's not true. You know how stupid that is? Because light is self-attesting. You know when there's light. You know when there's not light. Light doesn't need anything else to defend it or testify to it. It can do its own testimony. It can attest to itself. You know when it's present. And yet here they are. They're saying, oh, Jesus, you can't say that. Somebody else has to confirm that that's you. And then their conversation keeps going. He, he says, well, the Father's testifying about me. You can remember, you can recall John chapter 5. We talked about several other testifiers, witnesses to who Christ is. But the themes keep going through this text. We find Jesus say again that where Jesus comes from. And he also says where he's going. And he also says who the Father is. And he also says who Jesus is. And then not only that, but in this passage, this story, the opposite of each of those themes is applied to the Jews. So we find that Jesus is from above, they are from below, they are from the world, he is not from the world. Where he goes, they cannot come. God is his father, theirs is the devil. And he's talking through all of this, and eventually these, these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, they finally ask probably the most important question that every human being needs to be asked of Jesus. Look at verse 25. The most fundamental question to Jesus they ask, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Well, what's funny is they're asking, 
who are you questions, and Jesus is saying, I am answers. There's some other key moments in this story that track Jesus being the I am, or the, the, the statement of the I am, the light of the world. Look at verse 24. In light of the fact that you are of this world, Jesus says to them, Therefore I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So, so when He says, if you do not believe that I am He, that word, the words I am He are ego amy again. And the word He doesn't necessarily appear there. So it's, if you believe that I am, what? The light of the world. If you believe that Jesus is the light of the world, which is what's stated earlier means that you, you actually follow Jesus as the light of the world. If you're convinced of that, then you follow it. And what happens if we do believe? Then we won't die in your, our sins. But, but, but if, if you refuse to follow Jesus because you're, you're just not convinced that he's the light of the world, then you stay trapped in the consequences of your sin, the darkness of death. So here's this crucial warning that he gives to these Jewish leaders and it's kind of confrontational. I don't know if I like to be told, hey, you're going to die in your sins. Which is why I think John writes in verse 20, he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him. Like they should have arrested him if they wanted to, right? So with this crucial warning about dying in sins without belief in Christ as the light of the world, then there's this crucial moment, verse 28. Again, I'm sorry for the nature of this. There's just so much here. We just kind of have to hit on the key elements. And Verse 28, Jesus told them. He said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Oh, there it is again. Ego eimi. Then you will know that I am the light of the world. So, so here's how we're going to land this this all today. Jesus says here that there's going to come a moment in history when we will know that Jesus is He, that Jesus is the light of the world. It's going to be a, a moment of full disclosure showing exactly that Jesus really is the light of the world. When Jesus will be shining at His brightest and be most fully revealed. What does he say it is when he is what? Lifted up. When the Son of Man, when Jesus is lifted up, then we'll know that he is the light of the world. What, what, what did Jesus mean when he said to lift up? Does it mean to like celebrate? Like, you know, on the crowd surfing? Like, lift him up. Like, yeah, get Jesus in here. We want him. Does it mean to exalt? Like, I mean, you know, today, Palm Sunday, we got our branches. All right, we're waving them. Palm Sunday, crowds of people gathered around the roads of Jerusalem to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, and they're shouting, Hosanna, salvation has come. And they celebrate him. They bring out the red carpet, which was just made of all their robes. And garments. They welcome him in. Why? Oh, they were celebrating Jesus because 
He was going to come and he was going to rescue them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire and he was going to drive them out, lead a force that would drive the Roman Empire out and that then Israel would become its own prospering, self-sustaining, self-emulating nation. In other words, this Jesus, they celebrated him because he was going to come work for their interests and purposes for who they thought the Messiah would be. Like, wouldn't that have been nice? Like, trust, wouldn't it have been really nice if that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you celebrate him, when you, when you, when you make the, bring out the red carpet for him, like when you make him work for your purposes and your interests, right? That's when you'll know he's the light. Lift him up, he'll fix all your problems. Lift him up, he'll rid you of every form of oppression in your life. He'll make your life better. He'll make it easier, more prosperous. But was Palm Sunday the defining, shining moment that showed us who Jesus is? No. It's Good Friday. See, the words lift him up was a phrase that Jesus already used back in John 3. And it was about how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for those who had been stricken, bitten by venomous snakes. And if they would just look at that snake that had been lifted up on a staff, they would be healed. So Jesus isn't talking about his exaltation among the crowds while riding in on a donkey. He's talking about when he's lifted up, nailed to a cross. When they lift him up, he means crucify him, not celebrate him. When they lift him up on a cross to die, it'd be in that very moment, in that shining moment, that Jesus would be revealed fully as the saving, as the redeeming, as the creation-filling light of the world. You see, it's, it's really easy to jump on the bandwagon train of a celebrated king that asks you to follow him. It's an entirely different thing when it's a man hanging on a cross, condemned to die a criminal's death, hated by everyone around him, and he's asking you, follow me. Follow me, because I am the light of the world. But it's in this very moment that we would know exactly what it meant that Jesus would be the light of the world. When he says, I am the light, we see the cross. So are you okay with following this light of the world? Are you okay with it? Because, I mean, honestly, being in the, the light isn't exactly a comfortable thing. We get exposed, and yet at the same time we're welcomed in. We get called out, but we get graciously loved. There's triumph over the darkness, and yet we join in the war against principalities and powers of darkness. I think what this is begging today is that instead of asking Jesus to be a nice little feature 
in your comfortable life that he's supposed to follow you around and just kind of shine his light when you want it and make things better and maybe give you some wisdom about some things. No, it means that, that he's the one who's in front and you're paying attention to him and you're saying, all right, Jesus, where are you going? I'm following you even if it's to the cross. No matter the cost. Guys, I, I, I met with a guy this week. Um, needed some counseling and some mentoring and, and, and he's just questioning a lot about his faith. And, and he just very graciously opened up to me and he said, Scott, I got to tell you, I'm actually really scared to follow Jesus. I'm really scared to follow Jesus. Because, I mean, Jesus, these are his words, because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That doesn't sound fun. But he's exactly right. If we follow the light, we have the light. And he's ours forever. And we follow him to the cross where he's lifted up. And in that moment, we see really what the light was designed to do. Overcome the darkness within us. Not just simply what's in the world. And as we follow him afterwards, after we ourselves become children of the light, we follow him through the dark wilderness of this world and we'll see darkness for what it really is and we'll know what the core of the problem is and we'll also be able to see what beauty is and we'll also be able to see ourselves and see others and how precious every life really is. All of this as we are led home to the promised land by the light.